Welcome to Heartbeats, a podcast series where we focus on the power of music beyond entertainment. I'm a TEDx speaker, professional filmmaker, music lover, and Heartbeats host, Michael Boydy. The mission of our show is to bring awareness to the power of music and sound. Science shows us when you shift the rhythms of the heart, you can affect how the heart and brain communicate, allowing you to feel more calm, balanced, and in tune. Our goal is to share research, scientific data, and inspirational stories from survivors, legendary musicians, DJs, sound healers, engineers, and those who can attest to the power of music. Today's theme, Sonic Geometry. Our guest, Eric Rankin. Eric is a published author for a book called The Aquarians. He's been on Gaia TV and Ancient Aliens. Eric created a series called Sonic Geometry, which is all about frequency and form. And he lectures about frequency and form at the Integratron located in Joshua Tree, California. You are Eric Rankin. Tell me a little bit about yourself, Eric. I know that you are uh, a published author for a book called The Aquarians. Uh, you've been on Gaia TV, Ancient Aliens episodes recently. Um, you wrote a series called Sonic Geometry, which I'm a big fan of. Um, you work with the Integratron and Giant Rock. You have basically a lot to say, and I would love to hear from you. Well, the funny part is all those things you just mentioned are very recent <laughs> expressions in my life. I grew up, my dad was a banker. He bought a boat business when I was 13. I started working for the family uh, boat business at 13 until I was in my 30s. And that's just what I thought I was going to do my whole life is mess around with boats. I managed a yacht brokerage uh, when I was in my young 30s. I was a Coast Guard licensed boat captain doing deliveries and charters and instruction. And um, that just, I was on a track. I was driving a Corvette and making good money and thought I've got my life figured out. And things changed. Um, there was an economic uh, kind of, not a collapse in, in 1990 that sort of sent the luxury market of planes and expensive cars and yachts down. And we went from, you know, being very busy to nothing. And it kind of forced a fork in the road for me. And so I, I did a different business, allowed me a lot of time. But in that time, that allowed me to pursue a lot of passions. And one of those, when I was out in, the, in boating so often, was interacting with dolphins. I um, never would have expected that. But as I was out in the ocean so much, there was a behavior pattern expressed by dolphins and everybody loves seeing them. You know, you go to SeaWorld and they look like they're smiling and happy. And we grew up watching Flipper and things like that. But there was something more to that, that these wild beings want to come close to you and check you out. Sometimes it's usually it's just to ride, ride the pressure wave uh, that your boat, if it's going just the right speed and the boat's big enough, creates this wave that they can kind of surf and, and play around on. But I've had so many experiences where we would just stop the boat and I would get in the water ahead of, say, a, a pod. You, you know, you can't just jump in amongst dolphins. We have laws for protection, but I would go half a mile ahead and just go into the water and they would approach me and just be arm's distance away. I never touched a dolphin out in the wild, but I've swam with dolphins in the wild many, many times. I just got the feeling 
evermore that this is a really, really advanced species. And the more interaction opportunities you have with wild dolphins, which most people really don't get to have. I've done some charters like in Bimini where we'll take groups to swim with, with dolphins there, but most people will not get that opportunity to swim with wild dolphins. But when you do, and you look into their eye and they will instigate certain play, you realize it really is a very intelligent species. It's actually why I, I wrote the book, The Aquarians, is I was learning so much about dolphins. When I'm interested in something, I will just jump in both feet. And the more you learn about dolphins, the more freakish and alien-like they become. I mean, National Geographic magazine even called them like the aliens living amongst us on this planet, because where we have a brain that's divided into two sections, dolphins more or less have two brains sitting above a huge processing unit, this cortex in the middle. So dolphins um, are warm-blooded, air-breathing mammals just like us. They need to breathe air. So you think, well, if they need to breathe air and they're in the water all the time, how do they sleep? You know, how is it that they get their rest? Well, one of those two brains will go into sleep mode while the other one is fully action, you know, oriented and staying with the pod. And, and every single breath a dolphin takes is a conscious breath. They're not automatic breathers like we are because they have to know when, you know, their breath moment is. So I'm like, that is just so insane. And they are the true masters of frequency. How we even learned the concept of ultrasound we use in hospitals every day. Pregnant women get an ultrasound to see the fetus inside. That technology was biotechnology that we discovered that dolphins and whales have. And I was like, man, there's just so many things we can do. And since then I've been swimming with dolphins, some captive, some still wild, and have had these experiences where I've been blasted by both sonic and ultrasonic sound waves. And I have felt this process. I don't know how, it feels like being electrocuted almost. Your molecules wow. are lit up and stay vibrating for days. And that's happened to me maybe three or four times. And that's what launched me into the realm of frequency and its significance. Um, and the more you learn about what dolphins can do, so let's even think of healing. A big technology that we're learning in healing is this process called cavitation, where you direct sound waves and they move, there's so much friction against each other, they, they vibrate molecules, the sound waves are so intense that cavitation can tear tissue apart. So if you can, it's almost like boiling without heat, it's just rubbing together. So if, imagine that you're capable of focusing like a laser beam of sound at a cancer tumor in a brain or anywhere in the body and cavitate just the tissue of that cancer that you're doing a completely non-intrusive procedure and yet you're using only sound to use the process of cavitation to get rid of things you know damaged tissue or things like cancer so there's so much we i know we are going to learn more about dolphins and whales in the future they've been around this planet looking like they look like for about 40 million years which is a really successful long run compared to us so far and um, I think they are consciously participating in a healthy model of what it means to live on a planet without overusing resources, needing to build stuff, take stuff, own stuff. It's a completely different mindset, and yet they have this super complex mind that they use. They're mystery beings for sure.
in your studies with dolphins, have you seen uh, or heard of any sort of them being able to heal each other with their sonar? I know they communicate with it. Are they doing anything on that level to use to help each other in that pack when they're in a pack? Or I certainly would not doubt it. Um, I don't know how many uh, cases there are, you know, justifiable cases because, you know, a, a dolphin, especially, you know, captive dolphins behave differently than non mm. than wild dolphins. From behavior to even their physiology, they seem to go into a mode of almost like sleep. And it's probably so they don't go crazy. You think of these animals that m travel around the world 50 miles, 100 miles in a day. All of a sudden, they're just looping around in a concrete tank. It's almost like they have to desensitize themselves. So how much you could compare what you can study in a captive dolphin set that you would learn. And of course, what you're trying to learn in wild dolphins becomes very tricky because they're out swimming away from you all the time so to prove oh this dolphin we know has this medical condition and then we saw these other dolphins doing something to that dolphin and look now we can test that mm -hmm. that's tough it's very tough yeah now let me take it back a step though there was this doctor david nathanson in florida and this is going back 20 years or so if not even a little longer and he had this idea he was working with uh children with disabilities, autism, uh, you know, palsies, di different things. And he thought that if he put enough things that children love together, that they would almost push through their disabilities. And he thought, well, children love animals. They love swimming usually. They seem to love dolphins, um, all these different things. And he, they love play. So he put these kids one at a time and their families were present and it was a week-long procedure in with dolphins. And this was down at Dolphins Plus in, in uh, Florida. And these dolphins at the time, it was amazing. They were captive, but they were not trained and they were released every day. They were actually released out into the wild through the canals in Key Largo and then came back on their own volition. And then they would close the pen and allow people to swim. So it's almost like these dolphins knew they were serving like some kind of ambassadorship. Dr. Nathanson described this one boy, he was about eight years old, and he had these palsied hands, you know, he couldn't move, he couldn't speak. He had never spoken a word. His hands were always clenched very tight and downward towards his wrists. And he just thought, you know, maybe we can help. So he had this dolphin named B interact with this boy and nothing much was happening. And then on about the fourth day, they were the doctor and a nurse were just floating the boy on his back and, you know, where he didn't need to worry about floating. They were suspending him. Dolphin swung around B and put her rostrum, that's what you would call the snout, the rostrum up against the top of his head and blasted him, actively blasted him in real time with this ultrasonic pulse. And in real time, that boy's eyes, instead of looking off into nothing, were focused on who was carrying him. His hands unclenched. And within a day, he said B and water and dolphin I mean, this is un unheard of. The family could not believe it. And Dr. Nathanson wanted to believe that, you know, it was his combination of things. But obviously it was the dolphin did something physiologically to this boy. And I, that story just knocked me off my feet. I actually ended up inserting that story, a fictionalized version of it into my book because it's so powerful. What I didn't include was a few years later, the little boy wherever he was back home with his family, woke up in a nervous 
sweats like a nightmare dream screaming out this dolphin's name b b b and the mother's like what he hasn't acted like this she called dr nathanson said i i don't know how to describe it it's like if he's going backwards or whatever and he goes well i don't know what to tell you but b died last night there was some sort of connection between this dolphin and boy that is completely unexplainable through scientific methods but we do know that she did something physiologically using sound that healed partially this this child and that's right. that's an amazing thing <laughs> i just got chills all over the place absolutely i, I get I chills every time so i tell that story it's those miracles that we don't see all the time that we hear about that people really want to be more inspired by but they also sometimes want to just see something or, you know, you could tell them an anecdotal story, but it's so nice to, just to, to back it up with some sort of images or data and stuff. It's just, um, yeah, I'm sure you could find some people doing research today that would offer some fascinating, probably even newer, more exciting discoveries about how dolphins use frequency in communication, possibly storytelling, healing. I, I think we're just beginning to step into that realm of what they're capable of. I believe that too. I know you uh, were really passionate about a, a, a several different things and you and I spoke before and there's something you wanted to talk about with the codes and the mysteries of unlocking a specific, uh, how do you say it, a key or a message that's being delivered from an external source. Can you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's hard to talk about a little bit, but we can sort of encapsulate. So in uh, and which I did in my two Sonic Geometry videos. So uh, your listeners can go to sonicgeometry.com and watch the two informational videos, Sonic Geometry 1 and 2. And then 3 is more or less like a, a transmission that came through. It's about 10 minutes long. But Sonic Geometry is a, a phrase that I coined to describe this interrelationship between geometrics and frequencies. And it just came to me out of the blue. That's why I call it either a visitation or a download, because I hated math my whole life. I failed at math. Geometry was my worst subject. I never took anything more advanced in college. But one day I was guided to draw a triangle and other geometric forms on a whiteboard in my office. I had no idea why. And then write down their sum totals, which I had to look on Wikipedia to even know some totals of some geometric shapes, like a, a pentagon is always 540. If you take all five of its angles and they're all 108 and multiply them times five, you get 540. A hexagon is always 720. An octagon is always 1080. So I, I, the last thing I was guided to is play those numbers as sound frequencies. I'm like, well, that's a weird thought to have, but I did that through a, an app on my phone. You know, you're able to download these tone generating apps. And the first thing I realized was that they were creating a harmonic triad. Um, most beautiful form of music uh, in music is this major chord harmony triad. It's like la, la, la. It's what we call coming home in music. It, it, we so want to hear it. If a song starts in a minor key, our soul almost is hoping it will end in a major key because minors sound a little dangerous and dark and majors tell us that everything's going to be okay. So somehow geometry in music form was revealing to us this chord that tells us everything is right or everything is okay. And I'm like, wow, that's fascinating. I gotta go learn more about that. So I rushed to my laptop. 
I Google searched, you know, any version that I could of the words geometry reveals major chord harmonics and could not find a single reference. These last eight years, I'm the guy, the reason I'm on History Channel or Gaia or anything is I'm the guy that made that discovery. And that is mind blowing to me. That seems like something that we should have known hundreds, if not thousands of years ago of this relationship between geometry and harmony. Now here's where it gets really weird is the particular numbers that come through, uh, through geometry and what they reveal, um, how we measure geometry is because a circle is 360 degrees. And I'll bet you already knew that a circle is 360 degrees. But if I asked you, why is a circle 360 degrees? Would you know? Uh, just uh, putting the two halves together would make 360. <laughs> <Two> <laughs> together. Yeah. Well, you're, you're not alone. I have been doing uh, Integratron lectures, you know, and lectured all over the country, talked to mathematicians, people, engineers, architects who use geometry every day. And when I ask him, why is a circle 360 degrees when it could be anything? A degree is a little pie wedge. It could have been 10, it could have been 100. If it was metric, it would have been 100 or 1,000. Why is it 360? And not one has ever bothered to research. They just know it is. But that creates all the angles we know of in everything else. It's like when you see an angle, the reason it's 45 or 180 or 360 is because a circle is laid over it. I'm like, well, who decided 360 for a circle? That's truly when the rabbit hole appeared and I was invited to jump in it and I'm still in it. But you go back to when someone decided a circle would have 360 degrees. That was 6,000 years ago in Samaria. It's the same moment that humanity got its first written language, got a math system called sexagesimal math, meaning base 60 and 660s is what makes 360. It's, it's, it's the birthing of how we measure time in a second. It's how we measure distance in inches, feet, yards, nautical miles, and miles, those are all called um, royal measurements, imperial measurements, or kingly measurements. And I'm like, and those numbers all point to something significant because they show up in our myths, our stories, uh, geometry, uh, temples, sacred buildings around the world. Joseph Campbell traveled the world on almost like an obsessive quest uh, following up on what he called the hero's journey, the story of an unlikely hero discovering something significant and bringing it back to his home society. But what he discovered on top of that story being repeated all over the world were number sequences that were repeated all over the world, no matter the culture. Numbers like 432 and 144. Think of 144,000 in the Bible, you know, or, uh, I mean, they're, they're in these stories. Well, those numbers, repeat cosmically. Now, we have a number like 2160. That's the sum total of a cube. 2160 also happens to be the exact number of years in an astrological age. 2160 is the exact diameter of the moon in miles. It's like, and all those things only locked back in step. If you go back 6,000 years to the sexagesimal counting system we were taught, and we can read the language that the people of the day wrote. And we said, how did you come up with all these technologies? This is not only the first written language in math, but it's the first uh, wheeled and axled vehicle. It's the first arch, it's the first plow, it's the first loom to weave fabric, pottery wheel. Technologies we use today were invented in one place. And we're like, how did you do that? 
and the narrative is written in clay tablets, we did not. There were visitors that came from the sky and told us how to do these things and how to do our math and how to write these words and use written communication. They were not talking about myth. They were not talking about, you know, pretend gods to explain natural phenomenon. They were talking about skin and bone, you know, flesh and blood beings you could touch that looked similar to us, that were, but were much taller, like maybe 12 feet tall or bigger. Um, they were called the Anunnaki in the Bible. There is a story that Moses tells of their, after they roamed the desert for 40 years, they're getting ready to invade Canaan. That was the land of milk and honey. Moses sent two spies and said, how is it? They said, it's going to be great after we take them over, but it's not going to be easy because the Anak, the giant Anak, are still living amongst the people there. And they're so big, they make normal humans look like grasshoppers in comparison. That's in the Bible, the Anak. So, you know, there's something in our narrative that is so significant. And I believe the discovery of all these coincidental number sequences not only reveal frequency codes that are harmonic, they reveal that there was an intelligent species that made contact and through the years since then to this day are still in contact with us, guiding our attention towards these number sequences for a purpose. And I don't think we have fully understood what that purpose is, but I think the most important aspect is just to reveal, to understand that we have been in contact. Is there documentation from the Sumerians on these clay tablets somewhere that people can yes. still see? They still have these Absolutely. in like a museum Absolutely. somewhere? You can, to, or... you can go to UCLA. UCLA. Uh -huh. So up until about 150 years ago, we did not know. We had heard the word Sumeria through ancient texts, but we didn't know exactly where it was. And we didn't know what technological abilities they had. We certainly didn't know that they had a written language, but... Um, their tablets were discovered about 150 years ago, and right away it sent shockwaves through the religious world because there were stories that predated by about 2,000 years a story of an, an Adamic race, of gods creating people, of uh, sky visitors in the form of angels mating with earth beings, that we are hybrids, that's what we are, um, that... Uh, a story akin to Noah and the ark of uh, a man getting a message that the world was going to be flooded and gather animals with his family. All those stories predate the Jewish tellings of them, and they were all Sumerian stories. So we, they wrote tens of thousands, or they wrote way more than that, but we know of tens of thousands of these tablets. They're about iPad size. They were made out of soft clay, written on with a stylus, the language is called cuneiform, and then they were baked. So if they didn't crack or, or were destroyed, we found gobs of them, and we are able to read them. And uh, there is a virtual library at UCLA where you can choose a particular play tablet, and it will translate for you what it is said in English or whatever language you may Wow. That's phenomenal. Great story. That's great. Very interesting stuff. So have you coordinated with any sort of major mathematicians or people, uh, physicists, people that study string theory or, um, you know, the Sumerians and, and tied all this together and see if you have, I mean, you're onto something, I believe, but have you, has other people come up with the same kind of thing with, you know, geometry and math and 
sound being all um, interrelated? Yes, in a in a way. Now we know that math and sound are interrelated already because uh, music intervals are math related. They're intervals. That started with Pythagoras, you know, twenty five hundred years ago or so, taking a string, vibrating it, dividing it in half, and realizing that if you divided that exact string in half, it was the same note, only twice as high as pitch. That's called an octave. Mm-hmm. Some of those things are old. And but some of these things about geometric forms revealing not only frequencies but being aligned with these number sequences that have seemingly been gifted to humanity for thousands of years, that is pretty new. And yes, I've been invited into numerous think tanks um, with really, really advanced. I mean, t- talking about the world leaders in physics, Manas Kafados. Uh, he's a dean of physics. He wrote You Are the Universe with Deepak Chopra. He's written more books on physics and spirituality than anyone. Very respected physicist. He came to my apartment to look at my models based on this field of work called sonic geometry. It's It's been mind-blowing. Nassim Harriman, I've sat on numerous councils with him, roundtable discussions. There's a researcher, Robert Grant, who found my work, who was already kind of circling around, circling the wagons around this information, but when he saw it, just like, holy crap, it's so important. And yes, there are a lot of people now um, using, utilizing the sonic geometry information. A, a, a very recent affirmation of this um, was Burning Man. I've, I've been a fan of Burning Man for years. I've been going for since 2006. And uh, I had no idea I bought their poster because Burning Man is canceled this year. I got the poster, it's full of information. The, the title or the theme of this year's burn is the multiverse. And I thought, that's a cool name. I open it up, it's full of information, and about a third of it is information lifted directly from the sonic geometry videos. I mean, it literally says sonic geometry, the language of frequency and form, which is the title of the first sonic geometry video. So I'm just like, I was able to reach out to the artist, and she said, oh my gosh, I'm first she apologized for not putting my name on. I said, that's okay. I consider this information open access. I said, it was an honor to have it on there. And she said, you have no idea because all this information was coming to me. It's about planets and chakras and frequency. And she wanted to integrate it. And she goes, it was the your information, the sonic geometry information that glued everything else together. So there are people out there doing lots and lots of work. And somehow this simple, what I love about it is, even though as I talk about it, it might sound complicated, it's actually not. It is a very elegant machine that looks in my mind like gears and these other smaller gears spin off of it but they are all related you don't have to bend information around it to work you don't have to say oh that's kind of close and kind of fits and maybe it's related when it fits it fits with precision of a swiss watch it doesn't matter if the gear is big or the gear is small so the big gear in my work would be earth's wobble earth does three things physically. It rotates, it it spins, that's a day. It orbits, that's a year. And it wobbles. It has this slow moving wobble like a top wanting to, you know, as a top spinning slows down, it begins to wobble. Our earth wobbles. And to take one full wobble takes 25,920 years. Well, incredibly, if you take Sumerian geometry, if you take their counting system, if you take their measuring systems, every number in their system 
somehow clocks off of that 25,920 number. So it's like they're even revealing that they were aware of our wobble and created measuring systems, counting systems, musical systems, frequency systems that would dovetail into that in a way that you look at this body of evidence and go, well, there's no way that's all coincidence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is somebody knowing something and in a very slow way, leaving us little breadcrumb clues to get back to that broad puzzle of information. And right now, everybody, not just me, lots of people holding these individual you puzzle pieces. And only when we all lay down our puzzle piece and find its fit into the grandmaster puzzle, we're able to look at the picture and go, holy shit, this is big. This is to me the biggest stuff in our story. It's the absolutely biggest mystery, cosmic mystery out there. And we are just awakening to it right now. I'll tell you who an early pioneer of this was, was uh, Jonathan Goldman. I know you already had a, a, a show with him. He's a true pioneer in, in frequency and research. And his work today is much more broad to bring in more of humanity into the significance of vibration and sound and intent. But in his early uh, work, he was very fascinated by specifics. He was fascinated by, are there number clues that mean something to us. And um, he wrote a book, he wrote a fictional novel about this, that somebody who had decoded these codes and clues and applied them in a evil way, like a Dr. Evil mastermind way against humanity. But, you know, same holds true. If, if they, they're that powerful, we could use them to employ for the good of humanity. It's, it's all about intention, which I have really come to acknowledge and, and agree with because you can use frequency to hurt people and you can use frequency to help people. And it doesn't matter what that frequency is, but there's definitely, I agree with you, some connections to specific frequencies. And we are just tapping into those now, I believe, because we're just getting the measurements and the, the tools to actually be able to, do, to break down these sort of algorithms and, and waveforms. Well, that's exactly right. And you said a very important thing. We have the tools now we, the, the formula for a second was gifted to humanity 6,000 years ago. 12 times 60 times 60, that's 43,200. That's the number of seconds there are in day. Then 12 times 60 times 60 is 43,200. Again, this crazy mystery number of 432, 43,200 seconds of night. Add those together, you get 86,400 seconds. 86,400 is an 864 number code, and that happens to be the diameter of the sun in mind. It's the most ridiculous thing. We did not have the technology to tick off a second, even though the formula for a second was given to us 6,000 years ago, we did not have the machinery or technology to tick off a second until about 140 years ago. It was uh, Heinrich Hertz. That's why they're called Hertz cycles, vibrations per second. They're named after Heinrich Hertz because he invented the machine that could measure the second according to the formula that was already in play. So here's, here's the point though, is when we say we are the generation, we are the ones to, to make sense of this, we are because it requires advanced technology to actually crack open the significance of these number codes. Here's, here's, here's another one that Graham Hancock discovered. I don't know, I don't think he discovered it, but if you take 
the Great Pyramid of Giza, the biggest of all the pyramids, the most mysterious, you know, it looks like a cha sound chamber inside of it. Probably very likely its intent was as a frequency machine. Um, a lot of people believe it could have been like a harmonic balancer to Earth's own harmonic field. If you take the, the height of the Great Pyramid of Giza and multiply it times 43,200, you get the height of the Earth from the equator to the North Pole. If you take the base of the Great Pyramid of Giza and multiply all four of those sides times 43,200, you get the equatorial distance around our planet. We would have not known that until we knew how to measure our planet precisely, which is recent. Once again, it's only because of our technology are we opening up to these incredible, incredible pieces of information that have been haunting humanity for thousands of years, and yet we could not make sense of them until we had the capability to understand and cross-reference what these technologies mean. Yeah, there's definitely something with the pyramids. Um, I've just been really obsessed with pyramids since my experience in 2013 at Burning Man. Uh, I've been following another gentleman by the name of John Stuart Reed, who studied under uh, um, Jonathan Goldman, and he had a profound experience in the pyramids of Giza inside the King's sarcophagus while he was doing research on resonance. His back miraculously <laughs> miraculously stopped hurting and he went through an evolution of healing through there and began uh, a rabbit hole of bigger research than he'd ever imagined since then and i just find it very very coincidental and, well, here's, and he, the connections just come full circle it was another sound pioneer stephen halpern who's done tons of beautiful uh, meditation music i think he even predated jonathan goldman a little bit and he went and got permission to record inside the king's chamber singing. That's all he did, did was singing, he, no instru electronic instruments. But before he started singing, they're setting up the equipment. He's got a, a CD out that you can still buy, and I forget what it's called, but it's inside the king's chamber. And as they're working, one of the, the crew slaps the sarcophagus. Um, so they're not creating tone. He's not singing a tone. No one's making any kind of frequency. They just slap and move a percussion of air inside the king's chamber where the sarcophagus is and a tone emitted. The pyramid made its own tone and it was 432 cycles per second. Whoa. Yes. That's phenomenal. Well, Big whoa. <laughs> well, speaking of interesting stories, uh, tell us a little bit about the Integratron. I know a lot of people, I say the Integratron, they go, what is that? And I'm always shocked when people don't know about it, but it's always fun to talk about because it was a very interesting place for me to visit. I was grateful to be able to film there, and I know you have a lot of uh, connection with the Integratron. Can you tell the, our listeners a little bit about it? Sure, and you were one of the lucky ones that got to, to film there. Many entities, individuals, have entertainment companies have approached them over the years to film, and they trust their guts about, do we want this these people in here filming? And you are the only one I know personally that was allowed. Ancient Aliens was not allowed. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people, they just get a vibe and go, we don't need the, they're busier than they do these sound baths and you know have people come in and experience it. They have more business than they know what to do, so they don't need the promotion. They're not doing it for that. They have to get the vibe of what someone's about, and they just loved you. They turned me on to you. You had gone there first. Um, 
And so the Integratron story very quickly starts in the 1940s. There was an aeronautical engineer working for Hughes Aircraft out in El Segundo, but he was very enamored by the Joshua Tree area. Uh, he had been introduced to this huge rock, the world's largest freestanding boulder that's only about three miles from the Integratron called Giant Rock. He started staying out there. He started um, sleeping out there in a cot after he got permission to uh, to do that, to actually build uh, a house there after the first guy who had lived actually under the rock for a while. Uh, he died and um, built a, he took back up under the rock where meditations uh, would happen. And I'll tell you real quickly, there's a uh, movie called The Secret Life of Plants and you can find it on YouTube. You can fast forward and actually find about two minutes of video of a researcher doing work under giant rock. He would go under there and meditate and he started hearing voices and he thought he was just talking to spirit or angels or guides. And eventually these voices came through and said, no, we are orbiting extraterrestrials and we are known as Ashtar Command. And a lot of people have heard of Ashtar Command um, you can Google search Ashtar Command and hear a lot of people who say they are contactees. George Van Tassel is Earth's first contactee with the Ashtar Command. Um, and then one evening, he was not only hearing these voices in his head, he was sleeping on a cot outside of Giant Rock on a warm summer August evening, and he was awoken by a man standing at the foot of his cot, said he looked Norwegian, blonde hair, blue-eyed, tall, you know, handsome guy who introduced himself as an intergalactic traveler. And if he was interested, he would take him out to his hovering spacecraft and let him aboard. And they went out there. George Van Tassel says he went into the ship. Now that George Van Tassel is not a nutcase. He's you know, a college educated engineer um, right under Howard Hughes, working directly under Howard Hughes. When their meeting was over, it wasn't real long, this being named Solgonda said, uh, we want to commission you to do something. And like, what's that? And we go, we want you to build a cellular rejuvenation machine, an anti-gravity machine, a time displacement machine. And that's what the Integratron build project was. He got the download to build this domed, this two-story domed frequency attenuator. It never got finished. He worked on it for about 20 years. Howard Hughes funded some of the construction of it himself. They bench tested a lot of, of small models of this working with its working spinning parts in Hughes Aviation. I've said they pulled in television transmissions from the past and could look at them through this spinning like cyclotron, and but they never finished it in real life. George Van Tassel died in 1978 before it was ever completely finished and spinning. But in that time, something else is going on there. Uh, there are energetic phenomenons happening at the Integratron virtually daily. Um, physicists have gone out there. Researchers with high-tech equipment have gone out there. There is something definitely happening in the Integratron. And people just by word of mouth hear about it. They go out there. They receive this sound bath. They get kind of activated and go home and tell all their friends. That's the only way. It's word of mouth advertising that people go to the Integratron. And it's almost 200 people a day when they're open. You know, they've got the COVID kind of throttles right now. But it's amazing how many people drive hundreds of miles or fly. I have people that come to my lectures that fly from all over the country to spend some time in the Integratron. Do you participate in all these sound baths? Or are you one of the uh, 
do you do you offer the sound bath yourself, or is this something that people come to, to sign I, up for? I do. I do two different frequency experiments in my workshop. My my workshop is a full day. People get there around eleven. We're done around six six thirty. We go out to Giant Rock. We learn some history. We do a a very specific uh, electronic sound session in the lower half of the dome because that's where supposedly any rejuvenation was going to take place. And then we go up into what they now call the sound chamber, the upper part of the dome. And sound does incredible things up there, as you've mm -hmm. heard, um, bowls and things. But no, I don't play crystal bowls. I do have two uh, sound frequency healers um, from Argentina or from Colombia that um, do all of my events and they do play crystal bowls up there. So we do both a, a, an electronic precise frequency session and we do an organic sound bowl session, but I don't play them. Have you yourself had any profound experiences, uh, you know, uh, spiritually or physically at the Integratron? Yes, 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 and yes. I've had, <laughs> I've had con my first experience. That's what lit me up. I went out. I had never heard of it before, and then in within about a month, I heard of it twice. And I'm like, okay, that's what usually what has to get my attention is hearing of something I've never heard before, and then all of a sudden it's in my field multiple times. I went out for an overnight gong sound bath. This wasn't crystal bowls, this was gongs. And you sleep in the upper dome while there's a crew of people playing these eight large gongs around you all night long. And it really alters you. And I woke up in a truly altered space. I went downstairs and I felt that I was in contact, much like George Van Tassel in his early contact experiences. I didn't see anyone. But I heard a very clear voice tell me some very specific things about the Integratron and also that it didn't need megawatts of electricity and spinning parts to work, that it was more organic than that, uh, was where it was built, how it was built, with the intention it was built, and they would more or less supply the other workings that are more or less invisible to us in the framework of the Integratron. And they said, and they gave me the commission, find the frequency. That's how I came to sonic geometry was my hunt for is there a frequency that's all over the world that means something to all cultures and 432 satisfies all the criteria in the curriculum to to be that frequency it's a it repeats in nature it repeats in the pineal spin the fibonacci sequence i mean that 432 number shows up somehow in the craziest of ways and i have had from that initial thing i have seen light beings light body beings there many people that have gone with me have seen something there and the right before the covid shutdown my last workshop was march 15th of 2020 i got to sleep in the integratron they let me stay there overnight and i put on two specific frequencies i think it was 432 and 6480 which is the sum total of a dodecahedron and it's very shrill and high and not very pleasant but I'd been getting downloads that that could be a significant number. I played those two out of two different sound sources at different volumes. And I looked up into the dome and I saw, to me, the machinery. I saw the technology above me, um, held in place by these 16 radial arcs. And I saw movement, I saw lights, I saw switching, I saw circuitry, and I just heard, this is exactly what it needs. It needs steady, hum of the right frequency prolonged that it can settle in and kind of 
you know, a lot of people have gone to the Integratron and thought, oh, I've turned it on or I've opened it up and I still don't use that term, but I definitely got the affirmation like this feels good to the Integratron and you're getting to see what it looks like. And it was pitch dark. I got so excited I could watch this for 20 minutes. I was watching this machinery happening. I ran downstairs, down these steep stairs that you know of, and in the dark, for about two seconds, I saw a crew, almost like the crew of the Enterprise, hmm. manning super high-tech equipment, and they all were like, oh, like looked over their shoulder and leaped <laughs> off. <laughs> Just... <laughs> he saw us. Oh, quick, get out of here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, I don't tell that story because these stories are hard for me. When I hear all these stories, like, okay, you're, you've lost your mind and you yeah. had a and you were on drugs or whatever and that's not true for me i i saw these things and in the back of my mind no matter what if anybody says you didn't see anything important i can just go i have physicists and mathematicians and people much smarter than me that say i did and uh, for me and I, I i know i found something of many pieces of these puzzle that clicked together and that will have to just be good enough for me I say that all the time. When you experience something, it's like you, you, somebody can't take that away from you. And you right. can't really sometimes it's like waking up from a dream. You can describe it. You could, it felt like it happened, but you don't know how to really like touch, like put your hands on it. And I That's think it. it's, it's a lot of things in life, right? You know, we don't really we don't really know how life existed or began. We have our ideas, but no one really knows. But you have these feelings and intuitions and guides. And even experience is not always enough. I have two things. I have frequency sets and I have visual models to look at. Not computer models, visual things you can hold. Most people will hear these frequencies and go, mm, yeah, I'm nice, or oh, I didn't do anything. And some people will look at these models. Most people will look at the models and hold these star clustery things and go, eh, yeah, I guess. You have to be prepared yourself. You have to somehow have done the work. And I think the work is more or less just following your curiosity opening up, learning about these other cultures, ancient technologies, opening your mind to the idea of extraterrestrial, multidimensional vi visitation. And then you are gifted when you see these things or when you hear these things, they now mean something different to you. In, in the Bible, it says for those with the right ears or the right eyes, here's some information for you. But it doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. So I... I'm fine with that. I I keep these models in my apartment. You came to my apartment and we, we filmed there and you saw these models behind me. I, I look at them nightly and they keep inviting me to see deeper into what these models represent. So I get it. They're not just going to hit you over the head in first pass and go, oh, that's, I get it now. There's all the mysteries of the universe. <laughs> so when you take the blinders off, you start noticing everything to a deeper level. You notice first visually, you will notice flowers and geometry and you know earthly structures, worldly structures. And then other things will just become more intense with the blinders off, taste and smell and sense of being in a location. Those are all because you've opened up yourself to immerse yourself into them more fully. Some people do that with plant medicines. And I'm not against plant medicines, psilocybin or people want to do that. But I think eventually we're 
moving ourselves to the place where we can be in that field all the time without any assistance. Well, thank you so much, Eric. I know uh, you're yeah. running out of time and I know you have uh, some other stuff to do. I really appreciate you, all of your stories and your great work that you've been doing. And I just, you're a great guy to know. And uh, I love talking about you. this stuff. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, you're a great guy. Your mission statement, what you're doing with the heartbeat movement. And, and it is a movement. It's not a, just a film. It's a movement. Um, it is becoming aware of the significance of frequency so i always applaud you and sing your praises and just keep going thank you for sharing i appreciate that you bet if you'd like to learn more about eric rankin please visit sonicgeometry.com you can also purchase a copy of his book called the aquarians on amazon.com Our mission is to bring awareness and attention to the healing power of music. Our goal is to inspire, educate, and provide a platform for research, ideas, and real-life experiences involving sound and music. To learn more about our upcoming documentary, Heartbeat, please visit heartbeatdocumentary.com or heartbeatthefilm.com. Subscribe and you'll stay up to date on the progress of our film.